Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. A poet once described Cyprus as a golden green leaf thrown into the sea. The island, just 140 miles long, is wrapped in sandy beaches and a rich history. These turquoise waters, according to legend, were the birthplace of Aphrodite. But today, the playground of the gods has become a place to hide billions for sanctioned Russian oligarchs with ties to Vladimir Putin. Cox already a big target, and those are good hands! This football player wasn't just drafted into the NFL. No, but at 6'11", he's the tallest player and only American currently playing professional Australian rules football. A fast and fierce game that makes ours look like a quilting bee. So who is this tall Texas transplant? And how, in the name of Walton Matilda, did he become a star down under? That's our story tonight. I believe the first piece was... Jeff Koons is one of the most prominent and polarizing art stars in the world. His creations may look simple, but they can take decades to make and often push the boundaries of technology and sometimes taste. This still needs a lot Critics may scoff at times, but that's nothing new. Jeff Koons has been controversial since he first started showing his art more than 40 years ago. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Cecilia Vega. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. 
fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. After Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and its allies responded with sanctions targeting companies, oligarchs, and officials with ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Headlines trumpeted the trophies of Russian oligarchs seized throughout Europe. Yachts in Italy, villas in the south of France, and priceless art in Germany. But those fixed assets are relatively easy to locate. Finding the billions of dollars oligarchs have stashed around the world is proving to be more difficult. How do you hide that much money from an international community that says it's determined to find it? The question led us to Cyprus a tiny Mediterranean island at the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. As we first reported in January, the once bustling vacation spot is in the middle of an international game of hide-and-seek. A poet once described Cyprus as a golden green leaf thrown into the sea. The island, just 140 miles long, is wrapped in sandy beaches and a rich history. These turquoise waters, according to legend, were the birthplace of Aphrodite. But today, the playground of the gods has become a playland for wealthy Russians. We headed down the southern coast of the island to Limassol. Before the war, it was a favorite spot for Russians to thaw. A three-hour flight from Moscow, Limassol's mix of designer shops, first stores, Cyrillic signs, and stores serving caviar earned it the nickname Moscow on the Med. But Alexandra Atalides, a member of the Cyprus parliament, says after the fall of the Soviet Union, the oligarchs who descended on the island weren't here for the beaches. There are beautiful beaches in Spain, in Portugal, in Greece. There are a lot of beautiful beaches. I think that they found a fertile ground here that helped them. How did the Russian oligarchs use Cyprus? After 1989, when they stole the property of the Russian people and they started to build their empires. And then maybe they were afraid that someday something will happen. So they wanted their assets to be saved outside Russia. So they were looking for tax havens. And we had a very low tax rate at the time. They got a place to hide their assets. Yeah. Cyprus historically uh, built a financial system to attract overseas wealth. 
Myra Martini is an analyst for Transparency International, a nonprofit that tracks money laundering around the world. She says for decades, if you were an oligarch or just a shady character looking to hide your rubles, Cyprus was hard to beat. It offers the secrecy and still security. And that's what uh, criminals and corrupt individuals are usually looking for. What do you mean it offers secrecy? So in Cyprus, for many years, you could open a bank account without having a lot of questions asked. You can open a company without having a lot of questions asked, meaning you can put the money there without needing to tell who you are, where the money comes from. Cyprus became as famous for its opaque banking as its clear water. Soon, like sun-starved tourists, foreign money started pouring into the island. By 2012, the country of about a million residents had amassed bank deposits of nearly 72 billion euros. About 30 percent of those bank deposits came from Russian nationals. But in 2013, the tide turned. The debt crisis in neighboring Greece threatened to sink the Cyprus economy. Lawmakers, fearing the country would lose all that Russian capital, pushed a scheme other countries had used to attract wealth a citizenship by investment program. From the beginning, for me, this was unacceptable. Here's how it worked. Any foreigner who invested more than 2 million euros in the country, typically buying real estate, could get a Cypriot passport, a coveted possession because Cyprus is part of the European Union. So the people who are buying the passport of Cyprus, they were buying the European passport. They were buying an open door to 27 countries. From 2013 to 2020, Cyprus issued almost 7,000 of those golden passports, nearly half to Russians. Suddenly, the skyline of Limassol was injected with high-rise luxury apartments, its port with mega yachts, and its stores with uber-wealthy Russians. You could see them walking around like princesses, moving in the most expensive shops. They have their business, they have their houses, they have luxury houses. But in 2020, an undercover investigation by Al Jazeera revealed corruption in the passport program. No Cyprus had illegally issued hundreds of golden passports, some to criminals and fugitives. After protests and under pressure from the EU, the Cyprus government shuttered the program weeks later. But the passports were still out there. When you give passports to people that later we realize that they are criminals, then you open the door of Europe to criminals. The golden passports also open the door of Europe to Russian elites. 60 Minutes has learned that at least a dozen of these now-sanctioned Russian oligarchs were issued golden passports. Among them, Igor Kaseyev, who owned a Russian arms factory. Billionaire Alexander Ponomarenko, who was the chairman of the board of Russia's biggest airport and who the U.S. government calls one of Putin's enablers. And aluminum tycoon Oleg Deripaska, part of Putin's inner circle. According to the U.S. Treasury, he's been investigated internationally for, among other things, money laundering, illegal wiretapping and extortion, accusations he denies. You could set up Myra Martini told us a Cypriot passport could make it easier for those sanctioned oligarchs to buy property and move assets, and that the cozy relationship between wealthy Russians and Cyprus is raising concern internationally. If you are a small country that is very dependent 
on foreign money coming from one single country. This also even may create a, a conflict, conflict, right? Really, sanctions are only as strong as the weakest link. Is Cyprus the weakest link here? I think Cyprus is one of the weakest links. Then Cyprus Minister of Finance, Konstantinos Petridis, disagrees. We first spoke to him last fall. His office oversaw efforts to freeze the Cyprus assets of anyone sanctioned by the EU. Who has been sanctioned, specifically individuals within Cyprus? Regarding the citizenship, I think about 10 people were found uh, under restrictive measures. And the Council of Ministers has initiated a process to revoke uh, their passports. The 10 people that have been sanctioned, who are they? I don't have any uh, any names uh, now. But would you be able to provide us with that list of names if we asked for it? I'm not sure. I would have to. I would have to see it. We sent Minister Petridis a request for those names and the list of any assets of sanctioned Russians that Cyprus has seized or frozen. In a series of emails, Petridis' office responded that due to European data protection rules, no detailed list can be made public. But other EU countries have publicized detailed lists of their actions. So is the expectation that everyone should just trust the Cyprus government that they're implementing the sanctions that they're supposed to on Russia? Uh, I'm not saying that everybody should trust the Cyprus government. The Cyprus government does not need somebody to trust it. We have the reports of the mutual assessment for Cyprus 2019 that shows all the progress made in the past years. I think that we have proved uh, as Cyprus, that we are a reliable member of the of the EU. We do admit that in the past there have been mistakes, mm-hmm. but Cyprus has also been unfairly stigmatized. Petridis told us the passports of sanctioned oligarchs are in the process of being revoked and said Cyprus has seized 105 million euros of Russian deposits. A big number, but just a fraction of the estimated 5.6 billion euros of Russian deposits made in Cyprus last year. We also asked Minister Petridis about this. The dozens of Cyprus properties and active shell companies we were able to trace back to sanctioned Russians. He told us any Cypriot company with an EU-sanctioned oligarch listed as the owner has been placed under increased scrutiny. But often, Russian oligarchs don't list their names anywhere near their assets. Take the case of Roman Abramovich and his planes. According to U.S. investigators, they were hidden under five shell companies stacked like Russian nesting dolls, with addresses in the BVI and British Island of Jersey, all leading to an anonymous trust in Cyprus. But it wasn't Cyprus authorities who ultimately moved to seize the planes. It was prosecutors from the U.S. Department of Justice. There's always been dark corners of the international financial system uh, and kind of like water finding a crack. That's where the criminal networks will go. U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco is in charge of the Department of Justice's Klepto Capture Unit, tasked with finding the assets of sanctioned oligarchs hidden around the world. It used to be, you know, the guy fleeing with suitcases of money. That's not the case anymore. It is not. It is crypto. It is planes. It is yachts. It is layered. And so how do you keep up with it? Even the most notorious actors, whether it's the mafia, Mm -hmm. whether it's rogue regimes, the best tool we have is following the money. 
The money has led DOJ investigators around the world and closer to home. It turns out, like the tourists who visit Cyprus, dirty money doesn't stay on the island forever. Typically, it's washed and invested in other Western economies. Investigators say that's one way Oleg Deripaska has been able to skirt sanctions. What the task force exposed was the uh, network of enablers and money launderers and facilitators who helped him hide his wealth in real estate here in Washington, D.C. and in Manhattan. In the United States. In the United States. In artwork. In vanity businesses, including a music studio in Beverly Hills. In their case, the DOJ alleges that in 2020, Oleg Deripaska arranged for one of his children to be born in the United States, even though he was under U.S. sanctions. He has a child that's a U.S. citizen now? He was able to do that in one instance, and then in the second instance, uh, that was not accomplished. Because U.S. Customs stopped it. The government case details how, as the war in Ukraine intensified, Deripaska used a Cyprus company to arrange travel on a private jet from Russia to Los Angeles for his pregnant girlfriend, moving money to rent a home for her in Beverly Hills. But when she landed in Los Angeles last summer, she was stopped by customs officers. Deripaska, his girlfriend, and the U.S. resident who helped him are now charged with sanctions evasion. They are not in custody, but the DOJ has announced plans to seize his U.S. properties worth an estimated $70 million. Since the start of the war, the U.S. has moved to seize more than a billion dollars of sanctioned assets around the world. So what should happen to those assets? We are seeking the authority from Congress to allow us to use the proceeds for the benefit of the Ukrainian people. Oleg Deripaska has publicly criticized the economic impact the war in Ukraine could have on Russia. But U.S. investigators maintain he is a Putin crony who is propping up Russia's war machine. Back in Cyprus, 60 Minutes found a villa in this seaside complex, offices in this building, and more than a dozen active shell companies linked to Oleg Deripaska. The Cyprus government will not say whether it has frozen any of those assets. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Don't be fooled by the name. They call Australian rules football footy, which sounds cute and precious. 
But footy is a sport that makes American football look like a quilting bee. It's a game of almost cartoonishly violent collisions, without the benefit of pads. It features non-stop trash talk and is played on a field practically the size of a speedway. As the name does suggest, Australian rules football is the national sport down under, with games that draw 100,000 fans and TV audiences that, per capita, often outrate the NFL. So why in the name of waltzing Matilda do crowds in Melbourne sometimes break into chants of USA, USA? The answer, as we first reported in April, they're cheering Mason Cox, a Texan who stands nearly seven feet tall, ranks among the best footy players out there, and might be the most unlikely success story in global sports today. Sets it up, Cox again, I cannot believe it. At first glance, anyway, Mason Cox comes across as the quintessential Aussie rules or AFL player. At age 32, he's logged more than 100 games over eight seasons for the storied Collingwood Magpies, the AFL's equivalent of the Dallas Cowboys. And he is an evangelist for his sport, one played on an oval surface almost double the size of an NFL field. Footy entails players running about 10 miles a game, juking, tackling, passing by punching the ball, and scoring by kicking the ball through goalposts. Six points for splitting the center uprights, one point for the side ones. It's unlike anything else you've ever seen. It's probably the, the roughest sport in the world, I'd say. It's a mix of basketball, football. Um, it's a mix of soccer, uh, cricket even. There's really no rules. It's a few sticks at each end. Just try to kick it through those, and then uh, whoever does that more than the other team wins. Sounds like fun. Yep. <laughs> For three straight goals, Mason Cox delivers. Cox plays like a human blowtorch, not only catching and kicking, but mastering the art of the specky a tactic that transforms an opponent's back into a stepladder. Yes, it's legal. It is one of the major things of AFL that people look at and they go, oh my gosh, that is insanity. To stick your knees on someone else's shoulder, launch yourself up to 15 feet in the air, take a grab, come down, and then be looking at this guy going, yep, I just literally jumped on top of you. (laughs) It's like getting dunked on. Yeah, it's very similar. Cox already a big target, and those are good hands. But Mason Cox is the most unlikely player in the history of the sport. Never mind that at six foot eleven he's the tallest player ever to suit up, or that he's the only American in the league. He lived the first twenty-three years of his life without knowing the sport of footy even existed. He may be an Aussie celebrity and may recently have starred in the AFL's equivalent of the Super Bowl, but is still mastering the sport's nuances. And he's still fuzzy on basic footy facts, as we observed at practice. Kangaroo brand. What? What's this made out of? Kangaroo skin. That's pig, pig, pig skin. Oh, it's a pig skin. Pig, pig skin. Yeah. Oh. Well, I should probably learn a few things. Think they give him grief about that? You should hear them ribbing him about his accent. Here's Collingwood captain Darcy Moore. He's kind of this weird fusion between southern drawl and Aussie accent. That's an interesting mashup. <laughs> he definitely loves putting it on in the locker room. That's for sure, the Texas drawl. He puts the Aussie on for us. <laughs> you think the football, made of cowhide, by the way, travels in strange trajectories, get a load of Cox's story. What would you have said the odds of success were going to be? You could comfortably say one in a million. One in a million? Because there's 
so many talented players all around the country that just never make it. And the odds of succeeding are just so, it's so difficult. Like any professional sport, there are so many things seen and unseen that make it really hard to succeed. No skills, no track record. Yeah, no knowledge. No, no knowledge. Living, you know, thousands of miles from home by himself, it's an extraordinary thing. Home for Cox was suburban Dallas, where in high school he had to duck under doorways but played soccer, to the great annoyance of classmates who played hoops. There's no way that he's not on the basketball team at seven foot. What else could you possibly <laughs> do at seven feet tall other than play basketball, right? And Mason is a, a prime example that there's a whole possibility of things you can do at seven foot. That's Marcus Smart, now a Boston Celtics star who went to high school with Cox. Here we hear Height is wasted on the tall. That's the old saying, you know, he all his height was wasted on this tall dude for nothing. But as we've seen, it's not wasted at all. After high school, Cox went to Oklahoma State, majoring in engineering. As a sophomore, he was approached about an unusual on-campus job, practicing with the women's basketball team and simulating tall opposing players, including Brittany Griner. When the men's team was short on height, they too called on Cox, which reunited him with Smart, then the team star. Mason Cox back into the game. A walk-on, Cox spent part of three seasons as the last option off the bench for OSU. He says he, he did guard and bead for a little bit. He did guard and bead for a little bit. When you remember he was at KU, he did guard and bead for a little bit. Yes, when OSU once played Kansas, Cox matched up against Joel Embiid, now one of the NBA's best players. And Cox held his own. He's always had a little spunk, a little fire to him. He had moments where, you know, you'd be like, Mason, like, it was like, wow, I didn't know you could, you know what I'm saying? I didn't know you had that in you. Like, is everything okay? You know a little bit about being a physical athlete. Just a, just a little bit, just a little bit. Shortly before graduating in 2014, Cox lined up a six-figure engineering job at ExxonMobil. Then came an intriguing opportunity. A scout hunting for graduating college athletes contacted OSU to see if Cox might want to attend a combine in Los Angeles for this thing called AFL. You never heard of it? Oh, no, I'd never heard of it. Like, never <laughs> once had I, a word had been spoken about it in my life. So we Googled it, as everyone does, and then this thing comes up, and it's like, AFL's biggest hits, and it is literally people getting knocked unconscious. And yet you go to this combine. I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. I land in L.A., I get picked up in an unmarked white van, <laughs> thrown in the back, and he goes, we're going to go to the hotel and we're going to do three days of training. Hand pass from Lester Smith to Matthews, who steady shoots at goal! If Americans know Aussie rules football at all, it's likely because in the 1980s, before it could afford NBA or NFL rights, ESPN aired AFL games. But the sport was founded in the 1800s as a way for cricketers to stay in shape in the offseason. It's especially popular in Melbourne, where the MCG, at nearly 100,000 capacity, the largest stadium in the Southern Hemisphere, will routinely fill for games. After the combine, Cox was summoned to Melbourne, where he impressed Australian coaches with his height and his surprising agility. Soon after, he declined his job at Exxon and signed with Collingwood. We get the initial taste of what he's capable of. Can't kick, can't handball, but seven foot tall. Craig McRae is now the team's head coach. In 2014, he was the head of development and assigned to Tudor Cox. He'd finished college, he wanted to travel Europe, but he took the football with him. I get this video late at night of Mason kicking the ball in some forest in Scandinavia somewhere. And there's Mason running really awkwardly, carrying the ball like this, and then 
chopping the ball onto his foot. There was progression, but there's still a long way to go. See what he does. Cox approached his development like the engineer he was supposed to be. And that's why they pay him the big bucks. Making steady and deliberate progress, solving the physics of using his height as an advantage, not a liability. Yes. And he's doing all of this with guys that have been playing their whole lives. Yeah, well, we grew up, you know, sleeping with little footballs. Yeah, we slept and breathed it and idolised the game. Mason had none of that. What made you think he could pull it off? He's got that chip that, hey, I'm going to prove a lot of people wrong. Present! Cox made his big league debut in April 2016 on the hallowed ground of the MCG, an annual rivalry game held on Anzac Day, a national holiday. I remember sitting in this locker room just thinking to myself, holy smokes, like, this has happened pretty quickly. (laughs) You're sitting here about to play in front of the most passionate fans probably in the world on one of the biggest days, and you barely know what the sport is. I still had questions (laughs) on rules at that point. Like, I didn't 100% know what was going on. He was standing arm-in-arm with his teammates when Australia's national anthem started. I think to myself, I go, I don't know a word. And everyone else is belting him out next to me. So I kind of just laughed to myself and just kind of hum along. (laughs) I had no idea. And that kind of took the nerves away. That settled you. That That settled me. The game started as if scripted. Cue the sports movie music. A ball spilled out. Darcy Moore got the ball and saw Cox in the distance and punted it to the rookie. Well, this could be a fairy tale. Who caught it and scored with his very first kick. He rides it home. What a beauty. Can you believe an American in his first game has just kicked the first goal on Anzac Day? That day, I think, was one of those days that solidified that, you know, this might be something you're going to do for quite a long time. Cox was literally off and running. His breakout performance two seasons later in the preliminary final, like the NFL's conference championship game, suggested he could be a star. Having crossed 15 time zones, Cox's parents were in the stands that day as he scored three times. Can he guide it through? Yes, he can. Three of the very best. It's one of the greatest stories, I reckon, in Australian football unfolding before our very eyes. As Mason Cox became a fan favorite, he also developed into what locals would call a fair dinkum Aussie. This country's really got my heart, I think. I'm still marveling at your accent. Are you the most American Australian or the most Australian American? Probably the most Australian American. Uh, I still love American. I'm still American, but I'm, I'm half and half now. Flanked by his captain, his coach, and his parents, he got his Australian citizenship to prove it. And he's seen more of the country's exquisite landscape than most natives. But as in any sports movie, there were setbacks. In this play, he resembled a basketball player who headed down court forgetting to dribble. When Cox was a rookie new to the sport, these bloopers were part of the novelty act. Jumps what he should have taken. When Cox was a veteran, the passionate Collingwood fans were less forgiving. You've seen that? Yeah. Yeah, the judgment, the criticism. Adding injury to insult, in 2019, Cox was raked across the eye in a game and diagnosed with two torn retinas, leaving him temporarily blinded. That, he says, was when he felt the distance from home. I'd lost one of my senses all within 48 hours. 
um, and had to figure out if I ever was going to play AFL again, if I was ever going to see again. So what's that internal conversation going like? You know, did I do the right thing coming here? Um, now I have something that's probably going to affect me for the rest of my life. Um, was it worth it? Um, and you, you feel quite isolated and alone. Mason Cox. Six surgeries later, he regained most of his vision, but was a diminished player, and the great American experiment looked to be fizzling. Then Cox made an equipment change, adding another distinguishing feature, becoming the first AFLer to wear prescription goggles. He had one of his best years. This year, Cox's coaches say he's never looked better. That's pretty damn good. I'm watching your practice thinking Americans would love this. Oh, would go crazy for it. So in 20 years, if there are a dozen Americans playing in the AFL, how's that go over with you? I would love an American to break every single record I've done because it means that I've left a mark, you know? You know how extraordinary and unlikely the story is. I'm going to look back and think, you had the most ridiculous life <laughs> you could possibly think of. That makes no sense. And I took it by the horns and I made the most of it. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Jeff Koons is one of the most prominent and polarizing art stars in the world. Perhaps you've seen one of his giant balloon dog sculptures or the stainless steel inflatable rabbit he made that resold for $91 million a few years ago, the highest price ever paid at auction for a work by a living artist. I bought a much less expensive work of his at a charity auction about 10 years ago. His creations may look simple, but as we first reported last spring, they can take decades to make and often push the boundaries of technology and sometimes taste. Critics may scoff at times, but that's nothing new. Jeff Koons has been controversial since he first started showing his art more than 40 years ago. You'll find the largest collection of Jeff Koons' work at the Broad Museum in Los Angeles. Visiting it is like showing up at a strange children's party long after the kids have gone to bed. There's a giant painting of a party hat, a porcelain Michael Jackson and his chimp bubbles, a kind of pop culture pieta, the Hulk even makes an appearance. The star attraction, a 10-foot-tall stainless steel balloon dog sculpture. I believe the first piece... Kuhn showed it to us after hours. We had to make machines to make this work. They didn't exist. It may look like it's filled with air, but balloon dog weighs more than a ton and took Jeff Kuhn six years to make. I started with a balloon, 
and I blew it up. I twisted a, a balloon dog. Did you know how to make a balloon dog? Uh, no, I just got a little <laughs> book and I saw how you do it. So I twisted it up. I probably made about 50 of them and I made a mold of it. And then that was used to make the uh, stainless steel pieces. Uh, you know, originally when I made this piece, I thought that I could make it for about $300,000, which still, that's a lot right. of money. Uh, but it ended up, just to create the piece, ended up costing me 1.6. Wow. Uh, and that was uh, more than what I had sold the work for. That's classic Coons. He's famous for going over budget, and his obsessive attention to detail is legendary. He spent 20 years figuring out how to turn this mass of aluminum into a 10-foot-tall pile of Play-Doh. To get these basketballs to appear suspended in air, he enlisted the help of a Nobel Prize-winning physicist and he used more than 60,000 living flowers to create this 40-foot sculpture of a puppy. Coons often takes famous characters or artworks and plays with them, adding a gazing ball to the Mona Lisa. Or he elevates everyday things, making them larger, shinier, or surreal versions of themselves. The rabbit's from 86. 86. Like that rabbit resold a few years ago for $91 million. He made four that look at first as if they're just plastic inflatables, but they're highly polished stainless steel and weigh about 150 pounds. It's iconic because it can represent so many different things. I can think of Easter, I can think of a politician with a kind of a microphone, uh, somebody making proclamations, I can think of a Playboy rabbit. But I think one of the most important things to me, the reason it's reflective and reflecting you, reflecting me. You know, the viewer finishes a work of art. It's, it, it's about your feelings, your experiences. It's about your uh, potential. Maybe you're thinking Jeff Kuhn sounds like a phony self-help prophet. Plenty of critics do. But he does see art as something that can help people have a personal transformation. Art can be anything. I mean, it really can be. My personal experience of art is that you just don't have to bring anything to it other than yourself. So your message to people is you don't need to have a thesis in art history to interact with art and what you feel from it is valid. It's as valid as anybody else could experience. Why balloon dogs? Why gazing balls, an inflatable rabbit? Memories. You know, around Easter time, I would see a lot of inflatable rabbits in the yards. Uh, I would see gazing balls in uh, people's yards, in their gardens. Our neighbors who do that, I mean, how generous they are for us that we're just driving by or walking by. And we can look and we can have a little awe and wonderment <laughs> just for that uh, a second. To me, they're symbols of cultural history. Coons grew up outside York, Pennsylvania in a rural community where you can still find gazing balls in people's yards. He has eight children, six with his second wife, Justine, to whom he's been married for 22 years. They still live part-time in Pennsylvania in Coons' grandparents' house, part of an 800-acre farm where they raise horses and cows. I think most people don't envision that this is the life you have as a world-famous artist. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm very involved with my, my work. But on the weekends and summers, holidays, this is a really important part of my life. Kuntz has been drawing and painting since childhood. In 1974, while studying art in college, his mother helped him meet one of his favorite surrealist painters. 
My mother called me and she said, I just saw in a, a magazine that Salvador Dali spends half his year in New York City at the St. Regis Hotel. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, maybe, you know, I'll call. And, and <laughs> Wait a minute, you just thought you'd call him? I called the St. Regis. I asked for Salvador Dali's room and they put me through. <laughs> you know, I was quite nervous, but I told him I was a fan and that I would enjoy very much to meet him. And he said, can you come to uh, New York this weekend on Saturday? And I said, yes. He said, uh, be in the lobby at 12 o'clock and I'll meet you then. And he was spectacular. It would never have occurred to me to like just call Salvador Dali at his hotel room. I had nothing to lose, you know. <laughs> Coons and Dali spent the afternoon together. And at the end of it, he asked the world-renowned artist to pose for this picture. I remember he put his mustache up and he was telling me, you know, kid, hurry up. I, I can't hold this pose all day. <laughs> but I left New York that evening feeling like I could do this. After finishing school, he hitchhiked to New York and started making art in his Lower East Side apartment, buying cheap plastic inflatables and putting them on mirrors. Coons had grand ambitions, but he needed cash to realize them. So eventually I became licensed and registered to sell commodities and mutual funds. And so, you know, that's what I started to do to be able to make more money to make the works. That's not a career move a lot of artists make. Well, you know, I did it only that I could make enough money to make my vacuum cleaner pieces. The vacuum cleaners he's talking about were what first got him noticed in 1980. He bought about 20 brand-new vacuums and displayed them in cases with fluorescent lights. It was part of a series called The New. I was showing them for their newness, that this was a, a brand-new object. It was never used. You can see that it's clean, it's pristine, its lungs are pure. And there's also some sensual aspects to it, too. They can sensual aspects? Sensual. I mean, you have the handle and you have... Uh, the bag right there. It could be looked at as masculine. Or you could look at it and say, oh, you know, the bag is the womb. Art definitely is in the eye of the beholder. What did you think of Jeff Koons as an artist when he first sort of came on the scene? I was interested in him, and I also was kind of repulsed by him. Robert Storr, former dean at the Yale School of Art, was a curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York when it acquired some of Koons's vacuums in 1996. I think some of the work is really unpleasant, but it doesn't mean it's not serious. What's unpleasant about it? The imagery is, is vulgar, okay? Now, vulgar means many things. It means of the people rather than of the elites. So it's taking an object which the New York elites might look at and think, oh, that's tacky, that's, yeah. that's trashy, that's something you buy in a, in a yeah. gift shop, and it's blowing it up and making it perfect and saying that this has value? It has meaning, not necessarily value, but it has meaning. What is the message of that? The message is that it is there to be embraced, that it is not to be mocked, that one should not be smugly sure of one's own taste to the point of denying the possibility of other tastes. And is he being honest about that? I think he's being totally honest. And I think that he has made all of that fair game in a way that we have not seen since Warhol. I come down. Like Andy Warhol, Jeff Koons has a factory of sorts, with an assembly line of painters meticulously following his instructions, and dozens of digital assistants, sculptors, and craftsmen all over the world helping make his complex pieces, which are often inspired by very simple things. 
This is like a very modern grandmother's closet. (laughs) Turns out Coons was fascinated by his grandparents' porcelain figurines as a child and has collected hundreds of them. Where did you find this? Uh, I found it online. (laughs) He decided to make this $150 ballerina into a multi-million dollar, eight-foot-tall marble sculpture. But it wound up taking him 12 years. First, he used a CAT scan machine to digitally map every detail of the figurine inside and out. Then it took him five years, and the help of MIT scientists, to begin translating all those details into instructions for machines to carve the sculpture. The actual carving took another seven years. Now the work will really progress quickly because... We went with Coons to a workshop in Pennsylvania to check on the progress and found Ayami Aoyama and her team carefully polishing the ballerina by hand. Do you have a sense of how many hours of work is done on a piece? 33,000 hours. 33,000 hours. Hours for just handwork. It must be exhausting. I mean, the level of detail and <laughs> monotony and difficulty of it is incredible. Yeah, it is like a really unique job, I would say. I mean, that looks like a sort of a dental tool. What is, the, what is this? Yeah, that's nail polisher that, you know, the la- ladies actually really? use. Really? <laughs> yeah. You'll notice Jeff Koons isn't doing the sculpting or painting. He comes up with the ideas and sets the standards, but his artisans do the labor, which has led to criticism, including from our own Morley Safer. So what do you say to the man? 30 years ago, Morley did a story critiquing contemporary art and likened Koons to a P.T. Barnum selling to suckers. He doesn't actually paint or sculpt. He commissions craftsmen to do that. Or he goes shopping for basketballs and vacuum cleaners. Is that a legitimate criticism? It's a legitimate criticism if you look at art in a way that uh, you kind of want everything to be done by the uh, artists themselves. But it becomes very limited what you can do within one life if you're being responsible for everything. It's like the production of this program right now. Uh, Anderson, if you had to be responsible for the lighting, if you had to be responsible for editing... If I was responsible for the lighting, you would, we wouldn't see you or myself. <laughs> but if you'd have to be responsible for uh, everything, I mean, how many programs would you be able to create? I've designed, uh, worked on the systems, so that the whole process, at the end of the day, it's as if every mark was made by myself. At 68, Koons has reached a level of commercial success few artists ever imagined. He's helped design cars for BMW, an album cover for Lady Gaga, even a superyacht. That one angle. And later this year, he hopes to create a permanent art exhibit on the moon. He's made 125 small stainless steel moon sculptures and mounted them on a lunar lander that'll hitch a ride aboard a SpaceX rocket. Is there something about the atmosphere on the moon that would affect the lifespan of a work? Yeah, almost everything. Uh, You know, you have tremendous radiation. You have the uh, temperature change, at least 250 degrees difference from night to day. One of the most inhospitable uh, environments that, uh, you know, you could imagine for a work of art. The moon sculptures are for sale, of course, along with an NFT, or non-fungible token, which serves as digital proof your artwork is actually up there. You'll also get one of these larger moons to show off here on Earth. He won't say how much it'll cost you, but with Jeff Koons, it's a safe bet the price tag will be out of this world.
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm John Wertheim. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.